You're listening to the Southern Solstice Podcast with me, Sarah Sadler. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Southern Solstice Podcast. We're in episode three this week and finally get to go to Charleston with Larkin. Last week, you met her mother, Bunny Ashby, and her best friend, Pris, um, and they are dragging Larkin back home to Charleston, so you get to see what life is like there and meet a couple new people as well, one of which is Larkin's grandmother, Lil Ashby, who is my favorite character just because she reminds me so much of my great-grandmother, who the book is actually dedicated to as well. Um, Minnie Ora Strother Shepherd Staten was my mama Shep, that's what we called her, and she was in my life until I was 26. So really, really fortunate to have known my great-grandmother for that long. And she was the person who really instilled in me the importance of knowing your family history and just kind of falling in love with the cultural aspects of where you're from. She was a very proud Carolina girl. And one of my most prized possessions are boxes of letters that I have from her um, growing up. She was my pen pal well into my 20s and something that you really can't put a price tag on are those pieces of paper with her handwriting, sometimes written on paper towels. She would leave us notes before she left and um, really is someone who is so near and dear to me. So Lil Ashby reminds me of my mama Shep and um, I think that you'll fall in love with her too. So with that said, chapter three, High Cotton. After four hours of flying through the night and a bothersome layover in Chicago that she could barely remember, Larkin opened one eye to find an excitable Pris, her voice sounding miles away. We're here, honey. Wakey up, Lark. Lark, Lark. We made it. Larkin closed her eyes again, making a grumbling noise that sounded a lot like, ugh. It's always easy to forget how grueling red-eye flights are until the next morning, but still, she didn't remember ever feeling like her eyes were sealed shut and her limbs were too heavy to move. She could tell by the sudden quiet that the plane was empty for the most part, and only the last few passengers struggling to dislodge their two large carry-ons remained. Bunny, Pris hissed from her seat beside Larkin, eyes narrowed. How many did you give her? I only gave her a little bitty blue one, Bunny said innocently, and just a teensy green and white one. Are you crazy? Pris chided, her voice squealing with accusation. Did you want her to sleep through the rest of her twenties? By now, Larkin was starting to make sense of her mother and Pris's conversation, and the realization was helping her come too. She quickly remembered the vitamins that Bunny had offered her upon takeoff when the waterworks started after the reality of actually leaving Seattle set in. Judging by Bunny's description, Larkin assessed that she'd unknowingly taken an Ambien and a Prozac, one of the many prescription staples in Bunny's well-stocked medicine cabinet. Bunny viewed drug interaction warnings more as suggestions than instructions and enjoyed making her own remedial cocktails. I know my own body better than some doctor, she would say. After a few minutes of padding from Pris and slight smacking from Bunny, Larkin was conscious enough to stumble down the narrow aisle of the plane and let the annoyed service crew tend to the cabin before the next load of travelers boarded. Before you say anything, Bunny defended to Larkin, that was a mercy coma and you're welcome. Larkin rolled her eyes. They were back on Bunny's turf and playing by Bunny's rules. 
Though the last effects of the Prozac was partly to blame, walking through the terminal of the airport felt good, slightly unfamiliar, but welcoming all the same. High Cotton by Alabama was playing over the airport sound system, unnoticed by Bunny and Pris, but more evidence of the southern hospitality Larkin had missed without knowing it. Maybe 3,000 miles away from David would make her heart hurt less after all. Lil just texted me and said that she's waiting curbside for us, and if we hurry, she won't have to circle, Bunny said as she quickened the pace, kitten heels clicking louder underneath her. Since when does Lil text, Larkin said, trying to imagine her grandmother's long manicured fingers typing out messages on tiny buttons. Oh, honey, Bunny leaned her head back. She texts more than any teenager I've ever met. She texts when she's going to bed, when she wakes up, while she's shopping. She's got a smartphone. She's on the Twitter, too. Can you believe it? Larkin's grandmother, Lillian Middleton Ashby, was an elegant, quick-witted woman. She was buoyant and unflappable and weaved her charm through old family stories that went back as far as Charleston itself. She was the quintessential matriarch and the elementary pillar of the family. Lil was all that Larkin knew for a grandparent since her father's side of the family was estranged. Except for high school graduation and a few major holidays, Larkin never saw them. Charles Devereux was an only child, and after his untimely passing, his parents maintained only stoic interaction with Bunny and the girls. When Bunny remarried to Marshall Caldwell a year after Charles' death, the Devereaux, feeling betrayed, withdrew almost completely from Caroline and Larkin's lives and moved from Charleston to the mountains of North Carolina. Bunny was relieved to see them go, as she did not endorse the Devereaux stiff and overly formal airs, and they in return had never warmed to having an Ashby for an in-law. Luckily for Caroline and Larkin, Bunny's side of the family alone was more than they would ever need, more than anyone would need, really. As Larkin, Bunny, and Pris emerged from the sliding glass doors onto curbside pickup, Lil stood waiting for them, propped against a pale yellow Cadillac, wearing a flowing pantsuit with a botanical print scarf tied around her pale blonde hair. Lil clapped her hands together and looked straight at Larkin, absolutely smothered in admiration. There's my girl, Lil said, the honey of her sweet, rich voice lingering on every consonant. She hugged Larkin and kissed her cheek, leaving distinct outlines of red lip marks on her face. Tell me about it. Tell me everything. All of it. Lil glowed. I'm tickled pink to have you home. Isn't this wonderful, Bunny? All of us together again. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for coming to get us so early, Mama, Bunny said, tossing her Birkin bag into the back seat. I'll put it on your tab, Lil turned, winking at Larkin jokingly. The four women loaded up in the car and set off for a quiet ride to the battery. Mid-March in Charleston was delightful. Even though the evenings were still relatively cool, many of the trees had hopeful buds painting a pastel hue at the end of bare branches, beckoning warmer days. For the most part, this time of year was void of vacationers who usually waited until the hottest parts of the summer to visit, and even then, most of them stayed around Folly Beach or Isle of Palms, renting waterfront homes large enough to sleep 20 people. Larkin rolled down the window of Lil's Cadillac as they exited U.S. 17 South onto Smith Street. The earthen smell of oak-lined marshes and salt water from Charleston Harbor coated everything with a patina of distinction. Lil watched in the rearview mirror as Larkin closed her eyes in the back seat, letting the chilled breeze blow through her hair and then taking in a subtle, deep breath of brackish air. Lil drove slowly down Smith Street to Pris's house, waving at early morning joggers and old men with pipes. 
Pris's house, the Alston House, had been in the family for over a hundred years. It was a colonial brick building glazed with moss and a massive, unforgiving magnolia shading the portico. The Alston House was beautiful, modest in terms of the other battery houses, but the garden was the envy of even the most prestigious horticulturalist. Pris said the difference between her garden and all the others was that she did the gardening and no one was allowed to prune anything without her saying so. Lil rolled the car to a stop on the cobblestone driveway of the Alston house. Hank emerged from the front door with a hot cup of coffee and a fluffy white dog wiggling under his arm. Pris had been busy applying her lipstick and messing with her hair since they'd left the airport. She smiled ear to ear when she looked up and saw Hank with Iris, an apricot-colored Havanese that Bunny had given her as a birthday present years ago. Pris collected her butterfly carpet bag and took one final swing at her hair before getting out of the car. Love y'all, she said, leaning beside the window. Glad you're back, Larkin. Pris smiled, knowing the bitter sweetness of her coming back home. We kidnapped her good, didn't we? She asked, wrinkling her nose at Bunny. Sure did, babe, Bunny replied, smug with the accomplishment. See you tomorrow. Give Hank our love. Pris leaned in, waving at Hank and Iris as she started down the walkway towards them. Oh, almost forgot, Pris squealed, quickly turning around and walking back to the car. Jackson just got back into town, Pris said, leaning beside Larkin's window. He's staying with us. I'm sure he'd love to see you. So would Sylvia, of course. She's living in a condo up on Palmetto. Taylor lives in New York, but he'll be back to visit this summer. Stop by any time. Pris stood back up and set off again for Hank and Iris, who was now barking wildly with excitement. Lil gave two goodbye honks at Pris and Hank as she backed out of the driveway. Larkin, Bunny, and Lil drove quietly as the massive Cadillac turned by Colonial Lake and then onto Rutledge Avenue for the five-block drive to the Ashby House. Larkin let out a deep sigh when they turned onto Trad Street from Rutledge Avenue and the gold sphere on top of the cupola of the Ashby House was visible through the treetops. The house was built in 1782 by Colonel John Ash, a cotton farmer and major contributor to Charleston's then-booming shipping industry. After slavery was abolished in the mid-1800s, Colonel Ash, for obvious reasons surrounding the source of his wealth, became known as John Ashby to avoid any negative repercussions associated with his name. The farmlands, dotting the country from Georgia to the Low Country, were still owned by the Ashby family's trust, though the majority of Ashby wealth was now obtained through a textile company and a farm equipment manufacturer. Bunny's advantageous marriages had also thickened the pot, with the wealthiest of husbands dying and leaving her a sole beneficiary. Old is gold, she would say. Bunny always insisted that the Ashby family had never owned slaves, and Lil would tell stories passed down from her mother-in-law about the generations of black help that stayed on to work for the Ashbys even after slavery was abolished. When Lil did some ancestry work for her involvement with the historic Charleston Foundation, she came across legal name change certificates of employees that requested to take on the Ashby surname after the ratification of the 13th Amendment. At the press of a button, Lil opened the menacing wrought iron privacy gate surrounding the Ashby house and ascended the driveway into the courtyard. Larkin looked up above the garage to the bronze plaque that read through a Latin inscription, She Guards Her Buildings, Customs, and Laws. Such an appropriate caption for a house run by women. No matter how many times Larkin saw the Ashby house, it never grew boring. Every architectural detail of the building's four stories was exceptional. 
The pale yellow building stood tall, dominating even the most esteemed homes in the Battery, with three levels of pristine porches and massive windows adorned with black hand-carved shutters. The Ashby House was originally a colonial-style building, but in the late 1800s it had been revamped with heavy Italian Renaissance influence. All three piazzas showcased panoramic views of ancient church steeples, the Charleston Harbor, the Sullivan's Island Lighthouse, and Fort Sumter. The interior of the house was no exception, with a graceful staircase that ascended three of the four floors. Ornate dental ceiling cornices, decorative mantles with original wainscoting, six grandiose fireplaces, and imported handmade tiles. In the sitting room, an 18th century Italian landscape painting over the mantel and a walnut Bosendorfer grand piano that Lil played a Cimarosa or a Cherubini piece on almost every day were the most praised visuals in the home. Garden and Gun and Veranda Magazine had both featured the Ashby House in beautiful detail, an accomplishment that Bunny took full credit for after the last major renovation of the East Wing and the completion of the Orchid Garden Room behind the nursery. Lil always felt that the Ashby House was too ostentatious and intimidating to keep up, so when Bunny and Charles were married, the house was gladly taken over by Bunny, who was eager to take on the societal demands of a building of its importance. After they relinquished the Ashby House to Bunny, Lil and Larkin's grandfather, Alastair Al Ashby, moved to a brownstone on Lawrence Street in the French Quarter. Al died during the summer of Larkin's sophomore year of high school, and Lil made the decision to move back into the Ashby House property with a then-single Bunny. Depending on Bunny's marital status, Lil floated gracefully between the main house and the carriage house. Larkin always loved the carriage house for its location and charm. Through the enormous backyard, around the marble fountain, and past the private garden and gazebo, Larkin felt such a huge sense of relief with Lil living on the grounds. It was nice to have an adult present, and after Caroline left for Vanderbilt, Larkin wasn't alone in the massive place. Most nights during her childhood, Larkin stayed in the carriage house with Lil, who would make late-night snacks of warm crepes filled with fresh fruit while Larkin finished homework or while Lil told stories and read out loud. Larkin wanted to stay there forever. She felt like she had deep running roots when she was with Lil, like she knew who she was. She preferred a night in the carriage house with Lil to any night out with her trivial friends from school. To Bunny's dismay, Lil had encouraged Larkin to see the world, do everything she wanted to do, and to always, always remember that Charleston was home, even if she didn't live there. After high school, Pris's daughter Sylvia and Larkin attended Anderson University together, three and a half hours from Charleston, where she earned a degree in communications with a minor in public relations. Bunny and Pris drove up once a month, bringing clothes, food, magazines, and gossip, paranoid that they would become obsolete to Charleston society. I still don't know what's wrong with the College of Charleston, Bunny would whine. It's so much closer, Larkin. Your grandmother and I both went there. It's tradition. And what on earth are you going to do with a communications degree anyway? You have a communications degree, Mama, Larkin reminded her. Yes, exactly, but from the College of Charleston, and now I own and run a successful publication. No one reminded Bunny that it was the divorce settlement for Marshall Caldwell and not her educational background by which the Post and Courier had come under her control. After Larkin's sister Caroline married her college sweetheart Aaron Harrington in a lovely garden ceremony at the Ashby House and Larkin was finishing school at Anderson, Lil applied for an auditing course at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. 
After months of flambéing, poaching, and souffléing herself into culinary genius, Lil returned to Charleston and began cooking masterpieces for the patients at Kindred Hospital where, after a routine knee surgery months prior to her Parisian adventure, she was appalled by the cuisine and felt compelled to do something about it. After graduation, Larkin was hired on as a freelance publicist by Bunny's various society friends to pitch their luxury events from waterfront condos to art gallery openings. Bunny couldn't help herself from interfering, though, and managed to overtake each project. Realizing her mother's involvement would always be a hindrance in both her personal and private life, Larkin sought out the internship in Seattle, as far away as she could go. Bunny cried for three days and then met Coy Dabney and seemed to forget the whole thing. Sugar, Bunny said, snapping Larkin out of her glaze of reminiscence. You coming inside or you gonna take up residence in the caddy? Larkin shook her head and smiled intently. Nope, I'm coming in. Bart Wheeler emerged onto the circular travertine parking area through the back gate entrance of the house, offering to take handbags, carry-ons, and crinkled magazines read in flight. He was a slim, one-quarter tie man in his early fifties, with short black hair and kind, handsome features. Bart had worked at the Ashby House for 15 years as a state manager after his wife died. The fact that Bunny had inexplicably not run him off proved his high tolerance to her particular style of management. From day-to-day household accounting and oversight of domestic employees to extravagant party planning and travel arrangements, Bart handled all of Bunny's tasks stylishly. After exchanging pleasantries and welcome home greetings, Bart took the belongings inside where he would identify and distribute each of them to the correct bedroom, without question. The house was quiet. Bart had placed an all-green flower arrangement and set an assortment of fresh-baked goods and a French press of coffee out on the kitchen table. Bunny's itinerary for the day sat beside it, her appointments highlighted in yellow. Land development meeting at 11 o'clock, fitting with seamstress on Market Street at 12.30, lunch at Piper's with Muddy Holloway to discuss the annual parade of boats at 1.30, massage with Inga at 3.15, and interview with new head gardener at 5.30. Larkin had forgotten how someone could be so busy with absolutely nothing of real importance. Bunny had changed into a silk robe and breezed into the kitchen, pouring coffee while simultaneously reading her itinerary. Sorry to be so busy your first day back, honey. I'm sure you need the rest anyway, and Lil will be here. Oh, no, I won't, Lil corrected, her voice singing from the hallway outside the kitchen. I've got a dozen casseroles I'm cooking over at Kindred today, but I was hoping Larkin would come with me. I could use a sous chef. Lil reached for a piece of banana bread and winked hopefully at Larkin. Grab me a cup, would you, baby doll? Larkin reached up into the mug cabinet for Lil, who was checking to make sure she hadn't forgotten her way around the kitchen. Oh, well, long as you're home by seven, Bunny said, uninterested in getting involved. I'm cooking supper for us tonight. Bart's picking up trigger fish from the dock later this morning. Oh, and y'all let him know if there's anything you want while he's out. Bunny poured a cup of coffee and puffed at it, tiny steam curls billowing up into her face. I can't think of anything, Larkin replied with raised eyebrows, faking enthusiasm. What time are you going to Kindred, Lil? Lil looked up from buttering her banana bread. Whenever you're ready, sugar. It was hard to tell no when she made everything so easy. You do remember that I can't cook, right? Larkin reminded her, hoping for a downgrade in her level of expectation. I'd hate to ruin your good deeds by giving somebody food poisoning. Hmm, I know that you think you can't cook, and I love you anyway, Lil said, smiling. Besides, I'm doing all the cooking. You're doing all the slicing and dicing. 
Lil grinned wickedly and reached for the current copy of the Post and Courier before collecting her coffee and heading upstairs. All right, I'm going to put my face back on, Bunny said, placing her coffee cup in the sink and sweeping it banana bread and croissant crumbs. You know where I am if you need me. Larkin sat down at the round mahogany table in the suddenly quiet kitchen and glanced at the clock. It wasn't even nine o'clock and she was exhausted, mentally, physically, and emotionally. She calculated that Lil would be ready to leave in an hour, and there was no denying the need for a shower and some decent clothes. Larkin evaluated herself sitting in the oval-backed armchair, slumped over, wearing three-day-old yoga pants and what used to be a white cashmere hoodie, expressionless, drained of color for nearly two weeks, dry complexion from abandoning her skincare routine, and rail-thin from being heartsick. Larkin brushed the hair out of her face, stood up from her chair and walked sloth-like through the wide hallway to the base of the enormous staircase. She stopped short of the first step, staring straight up through the top of the cupola where the gold dome refracted the morning light like a spotlight down and over the banister. She couldn't help but catch a glance of her greasy hair and sullen face in the wall of countless antique mirrors of all shapes and sizes that decorated the three-story staircase wall. What a terrible chore for the cleaning staff to endure, not to mention a less than pleasant experience when scaling the stairs late at night. Larkin wound her way up the stairs, blinking from the gold light shining above her. Once at the top of the second floor landing, she walked to the east end of the house where her bedroom was. Bart had placed her carry-on bag and purse just inside of the French doors leading into her pale blue room. The balcony doors overlooking the edge of the gardens had been opened, and a smaller arrangement of the same greenery from downstairs sat on a console table. A light breeze disturbed the butter-colored silk taffeta drapes, waving in a fresh scent of peninsula air, humid and succulent. Larkin peeled her hoodie off, repositioning the camisole underneath, and wheeled her carry-on to the bathroom. She stopped the walk-in closet, opening the pocket doors and peeking inside. Bunny had taken the liberty of restocking Larkin's closet, top to bottom and left to right, Nanette Lepore jackets, Kinzo skirts, Abby Farron dresses, Rebecca Taylor tops, and Coquelicot shoes gleamed with newness. If there was one thing Bunny didn't skimp on, it was fashion. Knock, knock, Bunny said softly from outside the bathroom entryway. I thought it'd be nice to start fresh. I hope you like them. Bunny was dressed in a dove gray suit with a white silk camisole plunging below the top button, her hair pinned back loosely with a mother-of-pearl clip, and bright red lipstick accentuating her pristine face. Oh, they're great, Larkin said, emerging from the closet. You didn't need to, but I won't say no. The style in Seattle is different than the style here. She thought about how it had been nice to have the weight of social responsibility lifted off of her. Oh yes, I noticed that. Bunny smiled tightly. Well, now that you're back, there will be more things to dress up for than you can shake a stick at. Oh, speaking of which, the Bakers have asked us to join them for the kickoff of Charleston Fashion Week this Friday night. I said we'd love to. Larkin shuddered. Bunny glanced down at her watch. Well, I've got to get a move on, but you and Lil go have some fun today. And Sugar, please do change into something else. I can't look at those spandex britches one more day. You really should fix yourself. It'll make you feel like a million bucks. Bunny kissed the air and set off for her day of pointless appointments, leaving Larkin standing in a fog of her cocoa mademoiselle perfume and a cloud of unspoken expectation. After Larkin showered and washed her hair twice, she dragged herself out of the hot water and halfway dried her hair, leaving plenty of interpretation for it to style itself. 
Taking Bunny's advice to wear actual clothes for the first time in two weeks, Larkin pulled on a soft pink silk knit v-neck dress that, except for the bust, fit like an hourglass, shaping around her waist with perfect precision and hitting shamelessly in the middle of her thigh. Larkin had never done hospital volunteer work before, but she had a pretty good idea that she was already completely overdressed for a sous chef. Still, she felt good for the first time in what felt like forever, and unpedicured toes and all slipped into camel-colored strappy heels with a peekaboo toe. As Larkin doused a generous helping of moisturizer on her face, ten chimes from the grandfather clock downstairs drifted throughout the house. Larkin grabbed her purse, one that David had given to her for her birthday the year before. She remembered opening it on Friday Harbor as the sun sunk down at Sunset Point and how, even though it was just a purse, it was so much more in that moment. Larkin tossed it to the floor, punishing it for reminding her and taking one small step away from her life in When Larkin got to the bottom of the stairs, she could hear Lil talking from the kitchen table. Yes, and if you wouldn't mind seeing about getting me rhubarb next week, I have a recipe I thought I'd try, she said, her voice pleasant and warm. Well, if they aren't ready yet, the apples will be fine. Don't worry about it either way. We'll just see what we get. Well, thank you, Bart. Oh, Lark just came downstairs, and goodness gracious, you should see her. She's gorgeous. All right, we're off. Thanks for bringing the eggs by. Yes, yes, we're on our way there right now. Okay, you too. Bye now. Larkin stared in amazement at her grandmother. Lil stood cross-legged, phone in hand, simultaneously texting and talking on her Bluetooth. Lil took the device off her ear and pushed her phone aside, pursing her lips with a review of Larkin's appearance. Oh, my Lanta, Lil gawked. Larkin Lillian Devereaux, you are a vision. Spin around, let me get a look at you. Larkin put her hands up in the air, turning around like a lazy Susan for Lil to see all sides of the ensemble. She was relieved to see Lil in a similar outfit, wearing a long tunic dress with a triple set of pearls. I know it's a little much, Larkin said, picking her feet up and showing Lil her high heels. Nope, not a bit. It's wonderful, and you never know who you might meet, Lil winked. There are plenty of eligible bachelors at Kindred. Some of them aren't even on life support yet. Lil let out a giggle. Come on, Bart's coming straight from the market to meet us. Larkin worked her loosely curled hair into a ponytail on the three-minute drive to the hospital, swooping up the long layers in the front to hopefully resemble a hairstyle. Lil pulled the Cadillac into the parking garage of the hospital and turned into a handicapped parking spot front and center of the elevators leading into the main building. I know, I know, Lil admitted, pushing her sunglasses up over her head before Larkin could say anything. The chief of medicine insists that I park here, though, handicapped or not. Larkin rolled her eyes playfully. I'm sure he does. Following Lil down the sterile white hallways of the hospital, Larkin juggled casserole dishes, mixing bowls, and measuring cups as they weaved through nursing stations and treatment wards. As they reached the main reception area in the center of the complex, Lil gracefully greeted acquaintances and strangers alike with the same cordial tone and pleasant smile. Lil introduced several of the nurses as well as the activities director to Larkin in passing, beaming with pride. Lil turned down another unmarked hallway and entered a large door into a commercial-grade kitchen. The remaining kitchen crew had just finished cleaning up what looked to be a breakfast of scrambled eggs and bacon, with empty orange juice and milk cartons spilling out of the large trash can. "'Well, hey, lady,' a raspy voice from the walk-in freezer said. Claire Donaldson had spent the past 25 years as kitchen manager for Kindred Hospital.' 
Claire was a pear-shaped woman with large, unsupported breasts and thin bird legs. She had shoulder-length, coffee-colored hair with lightning gray streaks framing her tired, kind face. "'Well, good morning, Miss Claire,' Lil responded, finding an empty space on a stainless preparation table to place her things. "'I brought my granddaughter to help me today. Larkin, this is Miss Donaldson.' "'Happy to meet you, Larkin. Call me Claire. I feel like I already know you. Your grandmother has told me a lot about you. We sure do love having her come and give us a break a couple times a week when she can. She's a real lifesaver. Fine cook, too. Oh, hush. I get more out of it than you do,' Lil said bashfully. "'Well, I doubt that,' Claire smiled. "'What do you have on the menu for us today, Miss Lillian?' Well, I'm still on my quiche kick, Lil answered. So Bart's bringing some fresh peas and smoked ham from Donahue Farm. Let's see, what else? Lil pouted her lips out while she mentally scrolled through her internal recipe book for the day's menu. Oh yes, fresh pureed applesauce, steamed green beans with slivered almonds, and a little cucumber salad. Nothing fancy. Nothing fancy, Claire mimicked. Well, it beats the meatloaf, if you want to call it meatloaf, and boxed mashed potatoes I was going to fix. Sounds delicious. I'm sure everyone will love it. The door creaked open and Bart entered, carrying a produce box piled high with cucumbers, onions, all-purpose flour, and cartons of farm-fresh eggs. Larkin could tell by the effortless way Bart placed the groceries around the massive stainless steel kitchen that this was a weekly routine for him. Bart and Claire exchanged a sterile, routine goodbye before he disappeared again. "'Well, I'm going to go on and get out of your way, too,' Claire said playfully. "'You know where I am if you need me. Thanks again, Lil, and nice to finally meet you, Larkin.' Claire waved at both of them as she walked out of the door. Lil turned back to Larkin and tossed a ruffled apron with a smocked top at her. The magenta fabric corresponded perfectly with Larkin's pale pink dress, making the ensemble look ridiculously coordinated. Lil walked behind Larkin, pulling either side of the ties together into a big bow, then fluffing the ruffled edges out so they laid right. Okay, sweet pea, let's get cooking, Lil said as she finished tying her matching lavender apron and walking toward one of the produce boxes that Bart had dropped off. We've got three hours before the lunch crew comes in to start filling up the delivery carts, so I'll start rolling out the dough if you can start chopping some veggies for the quiche filling. Lil found ten large Vidalia onions from the produce box and rolled them down the surface area to where Larkin stood waiting with a cutting board and knife. Within minutes, Lil had the sixty-quart mixers full of flour, salt, and olive oil, churning together rhythmically. The stock pots were boiling rapidly, waiting to envelop the freshly peeled apple slices. Lil hummed a melody from a section of Rhapsody on a theme of Panini, something that she always hummed when she was being very diligent. Larkin hadn't missed hearing her grandmother hum until that very moment that she heard her voice again, subtle and sweet. Larkin had diced a mountain of onions and celery by the time Lil was rolling out the dough for the quiche. Lil brought fluted tart pans from Paris with her, all in pastel colors. As with everything Lil did, her culinary skill was a beautiful, luxurious art that spared no expense. The hospital kitchen sounded like a symphony of kitchen appliance motors, metal blades on wooden blocks, and the occasional clicking of high heels on the discolored floor. I think it's more about intuition than formula sometimes, Lil said with self-approval as she set several of the tart pans with dough, crimping the edges. It's important to be happy with what you're doing, even if you aren't doing it perfectly. Of course, everyone has their own idea of what perfect is. Lil raised her eyebrows for emphasis. But I'm pretty sure everyone would agree that this is as good as it gets. 
Lil held up a completed pan to Larkin before sliding it into the oven with authority. Suddenly, Larkin's heart sunk for the first time all day. She didn't know what triggered it or how it dropped so quickly, but she was suddenly overwhelmed with uncertainty. She thought about David and what she would be doing right now in Seattle if nothing had gone wrong. She winced from the pain of missing him. It was numbing and sharp at the same time. Larkin? There was slight alarm in Lil's voice. Are you okay? Yes, I just started thinking about everything and, oh God, it hurts, you know. Well, of course it does, Lark, Lil squealed as she ran to Larkin's side. You dropped a big old knife on your toe. How could that not hurt? Lil clenched her chest as she moved closer. Oh God, it's worse than I thought. Larkin and Lil looked down, horror-stricken. A large cutting knife stood straight up, impaling Larkin's open-toed shoe, its sharp edge piercing the tip of her unpolished pinky toe. Larkin almost laughed when she realized the pain wasn't from thinking about David at all, but quickly collected herself when a puddle of blood began forming on the linoleum floor beneath her. Oh no, I'm so, so sorry, Lil, Larkin wailed. I don't know how it happened. Oh, this is so stupid. Larkin took her plastic gloves off and rubbed her face fretfully. "Uh Uh-uh, none of that now, Lil said, shaking her head, refusing to let Larkin blame herself. She mumbled something about Bunny over-medicating her on the flight and cursed. Don't move, dear God, do not move, Lark, Lil instructed adamantly. I'll be right back with help. Lil moved quickly out of the kitchen, removing her apron in one motion, leaving Larkin propped against the stainless steel work table in utter silence of the kitchen. Larkin focused on regulating her breathing and not looking down. With light-headed clarity, she thought about the reprieve the physical pain was to emotional pain. A few minutes later, Lil returned with a plump, gray-headed nurse pushing a wheelchair. Larkin's foot was prickling with pain, but she was in too much shock to move or even speak. The nurse quickly wheeled the chair behind Larkin and, with Lil's assistance, helped her sit down so that the placement of the knife didn't move. For only a pinky toe, there was an unsettling amount of blood. As soon as Larkin realized she was safe from falling over, she gracefully lost consciousness. Thank you so much for joining me for Southern Solstice Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or by visiting my website, sarahsadler.com. And if you want to buy the book, maybe read along or skip ahead, you can find the ebook on Amazon and iTunes. And if you'd like a paperback, you can buy one from my website or request it at your local bookstore.